You can learn a lot at the dinner table. It's not only a place to eat and enjoy each other's company. It can also be where parents can train up a child in the way he should go. It can be where elders can practice hospitality and teach disciples. Martin Luther, with the help of his wife Catherine, did just that. They entertained a wide range of guests at the table, church leaders, diplomats, scholars, impoverished family members, and refugees. What happened at those meals were meaty in more ways than one. Luther held those conversations together with this strong personality, yet the topics could range and vary widely, not just Bible or theology, but also politics and recent news. Some of the students took notes, quoting and summarizing what he said. It was later published in what's known as Table Talk. As we study the life of Jesus, we see he has his own Table Talks throughout his ministry, and his disciples recorded them for us. All are inspired, and some are more poignant than others, such as what we see in today's passage. Now, before we get to it, let's review. Last time in Luke 22, 1 through 6, we observed what took place on Wednesday or two days before Passover. Together, chief priests, the scribes, and the Satan indwelt Judas Iscariot, plotted to capture Jesus in the absence of the multitude. In verse 7, it's now Thursday, it's a day filled with activity. We're told that this is the day when Jesus and his disciples kept the Passover. As Galileans, they were accustomed to eating the meal Thursday night, like the Pharisees. In contrast, the Judeans and the Sadducees would eat it next evening on Friday night. This difference partly has to do with how one interprets the start and end points of a day. The Galileans started the 24-hour period on sunrise, the Judeans at sunset. Now, all that to say, uh, Jesus and his disciples have a busy day. Thursday's all about Passover. During the day, it's about preparation. At night, there's there's the meal and the talks at the table before heading over to Mount Olives. Luke spends many verses talking about what happened from the preparation of the meal. And that's only second to John in terms of uh, Lent to before he goes out to Mount Olives. So since we have a lengthy passage, I'm I'm not going to read it all at once now. Instead, I'll read it in five parts and stop each time for commentary. But I'll give you the five principles right away. I call them five table talking points. First, obey Jesus by faith. Obey Jesus by faith. That's the first one. Two, remember Christ's death with future hope. Remember Christ's death with future hope. Three, be great through service. Be great through service. Four, submit to God's design for our trials. 
submit to God's design for our trials. And five, prepare for the dangers of the world. Prepare for the dangers of the world. So first, let's read Luke 22, 7 to 13. If you're using the Pew Bible, it's right in front of you. That's right in front of you. It's page 739, the Gospel of Luke. And if you don't have a Bible, please free to take one of ours with you as a gift from us to you. Luke 22, 7 to 13. Then came the day of unleavened bread, when the Passover must be killed. And he sent Peter and John, saying, Go and prepare the Passover for us, that we may eat. So they said to him, Where do you want us to prepare? And he said to them, Behold, when you have entered the city, a man will meet you carrying a pitcher of water. Follow him into the house which he enters. Then you shall say to the master of the house, The teacher says to you, Where is the guest room where I may eat the Passover with my disciples? Then he will show you a large furnished upper room there make ready. So they went and found it just as he had said to them, and they prepared the Passover. So here's some background. Just a reminder that the Passover meal and the Feast of Unleavened Bread were celebrated consecutively in the calendar. So the Passover could be treated as the first day of the feast. We already know from Mark 14, 13, that Jesus sent two of his disciples to secure a dining place in Jerusalem. Luke goes further and identifies the two as Peter and John. Why Jesus chose these two and why Luke revealed their names, we're not sure. Maybe our Lord considered them the most trustworthy. Perhaps Luke's foreshadowing their leading roles in the early church later? Probably both. But for now, their mission was finding the place for the Passover. The location had to be secret as Christ's enemies would be out and about, gathering intel on Jesus. So our Lord arranged a sign to lead the disciples to the correct home. It's a man carrying a pitcher of water. Since usually women did that, back in those days, it was unusual enough for the disciples to catch. At the same time, it's subtle enough to escape notice in a busy festival season. Peter and John must follow the man to the house, and they talk with the master of the house, who showed them the large upper room, reserved, furnished, and prepared. Most houses back then were smaller and without a second floor, so the owner must have been wealthy. Most likely, this is the home of John Mark and his mother Mary, and it became the future meeting spot for believers in Acts. So what did Peter and John learn from this mission? Simply to obey Christ by faith. Sure, the task of the day wasn't grand. They didn't walk on water or write the book of Revelation. But still, preparing for the meal was an act of faith as they faced some uncertainties and dangers. So they passed the test. So God uses such simple obedience for his great purposes. So let's see what happens next in verses 14 to 23. 
When the hour had come, he sat down and the twelve apostles with him. Then he said to them, with fervent desire, I have desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. For I say to you, I will no longer eat of it until it is fulfilled in the kingdom of God. Then he took the cup and gave thanks and said, Take this and divide it among yourselves. For I say to you, I will not drink of the fruit of the vine until the kingdom of God comes. And he took bread, gave thanks, and broke it, and gave it to them, saying, This is my body, which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Likewise, he also took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood, which is shed for you. But behold, the hand of my betrayer is with me on the table. And truly the Son of Man goes as it has been determined, but woe to that man by whom he is betrayed. Then then they began to question among themselves which of them it was who would do this thing. Let me remind you of the general table talk point before I go on. Remember Christ's death with future hope. Now for the specifics and details, hold on to your hats, hold on to your yarmulke and kippah because it's about to get complicated here. So it's now evening time, the room's ready, the table's set. Now what did it look like? Now in the pre-parenting days long, long ago and far, far away, Ira and I got to see the original Leonardo da Vinci's Last Supper in Milan. And it was a breathtaking experience. Sorry to say, Da Vinci wasn't quite accurate. Back then, everyone reclined on the floor. They didn't sit on chairs. Instead of one long table, it was more likely a U-shape made up of three smaller tables. At any rate, what's most important is what Jesus taught in that room. At his last supper, he established the Lord's Supper. We know this from three other places, Matthew, Mark, and 1 Corinthians. Now, you may have noticed something unusual here in Luke. He records that there were two cups of wine, one in verses 17 to 18 and the other in verse 20. The second cup is the one most familiar to us as the communion cup. So why is the first cup there in verse 17? According to Jewish customs, there were four cups of wine served during the Passover meal, two before eating and two after eating. The cup mentioned in verse 17 and 18 corresponds to one of the cups before eating. The cup after the supper in verse 20 is the third cup in the order. Again, this is the communion cup. The fourth cup, though not mentioned in the Bible, probably corresponds to the hymn that the group sang just before leaving for the Mount of Olives. They sang what's called the Hallel. And they sang from Psalm 113 to 118. Okay, so that's nice to know. Thanks, Luke. But what's the relevance for us? I have three answers. Consider them three subpoints of application for us as a church. And these three applications correspond to our past, present, and future. First, Luke connects the church to the past by being more specific about how the Lord's Supper was originally tied to the Passover. While Matthew and Mark merely tell us it was instituted during the meal, Luke actually brings us into the middle of that meal. Next, let's talk about the present, 
practice of the Holy Communion. There's no mandate that we must celebrate the Passover or drink from the more than one cup now. Luke emphasizes that cup in verse 20 as the most important because it symbolizes the new covenant, the blood of Jesus that forgives sins. It is not the blood itself. It symbolizes the blood of Jesus. And then later, Paul only speaks of that one cup in 1 Corinthians chapter 10 and verse 11. Thirdly, we should talk about the future element of the Lord's Supper. We say that it's a memorial of Christ's death, and that's 100% true. It's also true that you enjoy a spiritual fellowship with Christ at the table, according to 1 Corinthians 10. But there's a futurist dimension to the meal as well. Matthew, Mark, and Paul also include this future dimension, but Luke is the most emphatic. And if we take a closer look, you'll see this. Jesus sets the tone in verse 15. He expresses how much he wanted to eat this Passover meal. Next, you compare verses 15 and 16 together under the title of eating. And then group together verses 17 and 18 and tag them drinking. Finally, see if you can highlight some repeating words and phrases. You won't find too much in the odd verses, but in the even verses, verses 16 and 18, you'll see plenty. For I say to you, I will, no or not, until the kingdom of God. You see how Luke emphasizes that we must remember Christ's death with future hope. The Last Supper was a chance to think about the last days. The communion takes us back to the end of Christ's first advent, but it also takes us to the beginning of Christ's second advent. That's why here at Faith Bible Church, when we drink of the cup during the Lord's Supper, we read verse 18. It encourages us to look forward to our future destiny. So remember Christ's death with future hope. But as you know, the Lord's Supper is also an occasion to look inwardly for self-examination. In verse 21, Jesus reveals that a betrayer is among the twelve. He leaves out the identity of Judas And I think he did that on purpose. And that not only allows the betrayal to run its course, it also forces everyone to reflect. Could I be the traitor? Is there rebellion in my heart? Meanwhile, Jesus reminds them that the upcoming betrayal is not only decreed, it should be decried. God has willed it, but that woeful man is guilty. Both are true at the same time. So the shocking news causes quite a stir. But soon enough, the focus turns from Jesus, where it should be, to the apostles themselves in a selfish way. So let's move on to Luke 22, 24 to 30. Now there was also a dispute among them as to which of them should be considered the greatest. And he said to them, 
The kings of the Gentiles exercise lordship over them, and those who exercise authority over them are called benefactors. But not so among you. On the contrary, he who is greatest among you, let him be as the younger, and he who governs as he who serves. For who is greater, he who sits at the table or he who serves? Is it not he who sits at the table? Yet I am among you as the one who serves. But you are those who have continued with me in my trials, and I bestow upon you a kingdom, just as my father bestowed one upon me, that you may eat and drink at my table in my kingdom, and sit on thrones judging the twelve tribes of Israel. This isn't the first time the disciples fought over status. Back in Mark 9, near Capernaum of Galilee, the twelve were disputing about who's the greatest. A little bit later, closer to Jerusalem, the Zebedee brothers, John and James, got their mom to come and ask on their behalf for privileged positions in heaven next to Jesus. This power move caused great division among them. And what's worse, all of these disputes happened just after Jesus predicted his betrayal. Yet this dispute in Luke 22 has to be the worst of them all in its timing. It was at the Last Supper on the night before Christ's crucifixion. But our Lord is patient with us in our stubbornness and pride. He repeats what he has already taught them. Again, he's teaching them, be great through service and humility. In support of this principle, Jesus begins with bad examples, the kings of the Gentiles, the benefactors. That title, benefactors, attached to various rulers in the Hellenistic period after the death of Alexander the Great, Ptolemy of Egypt, Mithrates of Pontus, Nicomedes of Bithynia, But behind those labels, grand and design, were pride and narcissism, cruelty, Machiavellianism. Followers of Christ must be different. Those with age and experience should not act entitled. Those who sit at tables should be willing to serve at them. The best example that can be given ever is Jesus himself. I am among you as the one who serves, he says. But our Lord doesn't merely say such things. The same evening, he did something shocking. We find that in John 13, 2 to 5. You can look it up later, but I'll just read it for you. And supper being ended, the devil having already put into the heart of Judas Iscariot, Simon's son, to betray him, Jesus, knowing that the Father had given all things into his hands and that he had come from God and was going to God, rose from supper and laid aside his garments, took a towel and girded himself. After that, he poured water into a basin and began to wash the disciples' feet and to wipe them with the towel with which he was girded. Afterwards, Jesus would explain, starting at verse 15, For I have given you an example that you should do as I have done to you. Most assuredly, I say to you, a servant is not greater than his master, nor is he who is sent greater than he who sent him. If you know these things, blessed are you if you do them. Be great through service and humility. So Now for some applications, both for the believers and the unbelievers. 
First, for believers, this doesn't mean we must literally wash each other's feet. This is not an ordinance like baptism or the Lord's Supper. But what does continue today is the command of hospitality. Once we make hospitable service a godly habit among us, we'll start to see the beauty of the gospel that unites us. It's not about me versus you, my preference against yours. It's about what true disciples share together, just as the apostles, except Judas, of course, shared together great privileges in verses 28 to 30, we as disciples also share spiritual blessings, a saving relationship with Christ, the fellowship of his sufferings, the promise of a heavenly feast with him, future rewards for faithfulness. Next, for those who don't have a saving relationship with Jesus, let's talk about authority. There's a lot of misconceptions about authority out there in the world, but please don't mix up or confuse the imperfect rule of so-called Christian men with the perfect rule of Christ, the God-man. Know that Jesus, the King of Kings, was among us as the one who serves Here is God's son, loving those who would fail and abandon him in his greatest hour of need. Amazingly, he warned and even washed the feet of Judas Iscariot, knowing he would soon betray him. But that's not all. He died just like the way he lived. Christ did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life a ransom for many. He humbled himself and became obedient to the point of death, even the death of the cross. Jesus, the holy servant, died for us, the unholy subjects. The humble king for rebellious people. At the crucifixion, Christ took on himself the penalty of our sins, God's wrath that we deserve. He shed his blood so that through it we can enjoy the new covenant. In that covenant, We are forgiven. We can know God intimately. Afterwards, he rose again from the dead and ascended to heaven. Someday he'll return to judge all mankind. Before he returns at last, or we breathe our last, we must repent and believe. Admit that you've sinned in thought, word, and actions. Confess that like the twelve, you're guilty of pride wanting to be greater than others at their expense instead of serving them. Turn away from such sins. Then place your hope of salvation in Jesus alone. Eternal life is yours as a gift, not a works. You can enter heaven by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. Those who trust in the gospel can rest assured that they're safe in God's hands. If we are born again by the Spirit, we have assurance of everlasting life. Because we are God's children, he takes us back when we mess up and return to him. As 2 Timothy 2.13 reminds us, if we are faithless, he remains faithful. He cannot deny himself. 
There's no better example of such mercy and restoration than Simon Peter. He's a subject of focus as we continue in Luke 22, 31 to 34. Let's read that. And the Lord said, Simon, Simon, indeed Satan has asked for you that he may sift you as wheat. But I have prayed for you that your faith should not fail. And when you have returned to me, strengthen your brethren. But he said to him, Lord, I am ready to go with you both to prison and to death. Then he said, I tell you, Peter, the rooster shall not crow this day before you will deny three times that you know me. As you know, Satan's busy in this chapter. He entered Judas Iscariot earlier. But we can also infer from verse 31 that the devil wanted to bring down more than one apostle. He already broke the weakest link in Judas. Now he's aiming for the strongest link in Peter. It's as if our adversary wanted him like the way he wanted Job long ago. And if he can't crack open Peter like Judas, he wanted him to at least fall through the cracks like wheat through the sieve. In the end, what prevents Peter's ultimate failure is not the resolve or the determination of Peter himself. It's not his good works. It's not good morality. It's the intercession of Christ. So our Lord lays out for Simon Peter the path to return to him after his denial. But of course, Peter thinks he won't go astray at all. He's so sure he'll follow his master to prison and death. Verse 31 was spoken first to humble Peter. Ironically, Simon's name means hear or listen. But even saying that name twice couldn't get one of those ears to take in the warning. So our Lord has to be blunt as possible in verse 34. He wounds Peter's ego as a friend. It turns out the apostle's determination isn't going to last years, months, weeks, or days. It'll only last a few hours. The best he could do, and what he should have done, was to submit to God's design for our trials, for his trials. As we walk with the Lord, we learn that his plans do not often make us look good or feel good. We're not the hero we thought we were. But if we trust and obey God's design, we'll experience growth. I see two kinds of growth, individual and corporate. Individually, remember Hebrews 12, 11. Now, no chastening seems to be joyful for the present, but painful. Nevertheless, afterwards, it yields the peaceable fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. Corporately, think about Peter here and later in the rest of the New Testament. After his failure, he will be able to help others who also fail. Once he has regained strength, he will be able to strengthen the brethren. Knowing all this, we too must submit to God's design for our trials. Some difficulties are unavoidable. Our weakness will inevitably surface. But it's also possible to prepare ourselves for the battles ahead. That leads us to the final portion of today's passage, verses 35 to 38. And he said to them, When I sent you without money bag, knapsack, and sandals, 
Did you lack anything? So they said, nothing. Then he said to them, but now he who has a money bag, let him take it and likewise a knapsack. And he who has no sword, let him sell his garment and buy one. For I say to you that this which is written must still be accomplished in me. And he was numbered with the transgressors, for the things concerning me have an end. So they said, look, Lord, Lord, look, here are two swords. And he said to them, it is enough. These verses teach us to prepare for the dangers of the world. In a few hours, Jesus will fulfill the prophecy of Isaiah 53, 12. He will be crucified with robbers. The apostles will have to get used to being on their own without their master by their side. For about a month and a half from this night, they'll transition to a new phase of their ministry with Christ seated in heaven. Now, of course, with Christ interceding at the Father's right hand and the Holy Spirit sent to be with us forever, Christians are secure in the church age. Nevertheless, Peter and the ten others are going to be vulnerable in ways they haven't been for a while. For years, Jesus was with them, protecting them from storms, providing for their needs, guarding them from enemies. Now their time with Jesus on earth is drawing to a close. The strategy now is to prepare for the dangers of the world. In verse 35, Jesus reminds the disciples of what happened back in chapter 10. Jesus sent many of them two by two into cities he was about to visit. In verse 4, he told them, this is chapter 10, carry neither money bag, knapsack, nor sandals, and greet no one along the road. The reason for traveling light then was this, for a worker is worthy of his food. That's what it says in Matthew 10. They were to receive kind hospitality as ambassadors. And this arrangement worked back then. They lacked nothing in their journey. But now the days of friendly reception are gone. The world will hate and persecute the disciples because they hated and persecuted Jesus. They'll need money back for cash, knapsack for food. By implication, they also need footwear to cover the entire foot, not just the soles of their feet, as they journey through rough terrains. To emphasize how bad it will be, Jesus mentions the need for a sword, even at the cost of a garment. The danger is intensifying. A garment would keep a man warm at night. A sword would keep a man safe at night. When the disciples show our Lord the two swords they found, he says, it is enough. That could mean either the two swords are enough for them, that's enough in terms of number, or he's saying enough is enough, enough of this talk. You're focusing too much on violence. Since the disciples very often misunderstand their master, I take it to mean that Jesus is saying, stop talking, you're focusing too much on violence. We also have to make sure we don't misunderstand Jesus. Please don't take this as an argument against pacifism or an argument for the Second Amendment. All that Jesus is doing here is signaling a change in the times. He's preparing the disciples for the dangers of the world. 
But like the apostles here, when we face the world this week, we may be tempted to fixate only on the physical dangers, be driven by the fear of man. But our Lord encourages us to not fear those who kill the body but cannot kill the soul, but rather fear him who is able to destroy both soul and body in hell. Once we learn to fear God above all, we can face whatever comes our way. 